I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this episode, the Trade Guys welcome two special guests who represent medium and small-sized businesses. Karen Page is the CEO of Kansas Global Trade Services, which helps companies and cities reach a global audience. We met Karen at one of our live shows earlier this year, and we could not wait to have her on. We are also excited to welcome Kimberly Benson, who heads an export management and advisory firm in Santa Fe called Zeneda Global. Kimberly is the primary vice chair of the Industry Trade Advisory Committee on Small and Minority Businesses, or ITAC-9. So how does international trade affect small and medium-sized businesses? How is the administration's trade agenda affecting our guests? We'll discuss that and much more on this episode of The Trade Guys. Welcome to the Trade Guys, everybody. I'm Trade Guy number two, Bill Reinch. Our chaperone, Andrew Schwartz, is not with us today. We're not, however, on our own because we also have two guests, uh, which I'm very excited about. We've been looking forward to this one for a long time. We had to wait for them to come into town for other reasons. And our guests today are Kim Benson, who is the president of Zeneda Global, which is an export management and advisory firm based in Rancho Santa Fe, California. In 2007, she was appointed by the U.S. Trade Representative and the Secretary of Commerce to serve on the ITAC, the Industry Trade Advisory Committee, in this case, number nine, for small and minority business. And that's why she's in town, because the ITAC's having a meeting, and she's serving uh, currently as the committee's primary vice chair. Sounds like the committee has a lot of titles. How many (laughs) vice chairs are there? Well, we usually have two. Uh, Okay, and a chair, which is what we're getting to next. Karen Page is the president and CEO of Kansas Global, a full-service trade advisory firm helping companies and cities leverage their capabilities and global reach, and she's the chair of ITAC uh, number nine. So welcome to both of you. Thank you. We're both glad you're here. Usually we talk about... um, the events of the week, and last week was a, a momentous one on trade, so we may get there, but we want to take advantage of your expertise. So maybe we can begin by telling us a little bit about uh, what you guys do as, as essentially trade facilitators and what, your, what kind of work you have, and how is the trading system treating you these days? Kim, you want to take it? Sure. Happy to. Uh, Well, in my case, I've had um, uh, well over 25 years of experience in international business. I'm currently running a small company in San Diego that serves as an export department for U.S. companies. And in that realm, I'm involved in products and services. So on the product side, of course, any of our clients that, that are engaged with sourcing products from China or exporting to China are affected, obviously, by the tariffs. Um, But I also spend a good deal of energy and time these days selling services into Middle East. So I'm able somewhat to avoid the tariffs and the you know the So what do you actually do? You make contact with prospective buyers on behalf of clients? Yes. For example, with uh, with my airport client, uh, it's a client in Southern Airport in Southern California. They are looking to increase their private jet traffic. So my job is to go over to Middle East regularly, um, get that oh, get see. those private charter jet 
flights into the airport or diplomatic flights or VIP flights into that airport, and that, that becomes, an, in quote, unquote, the export of the service. Right. We've talked about services before. And Fascinating. That, yeah, and that, that's a, that is that's a service. A, that is a service that's exported, and it's a unique kind yes. uh, that, that you're providing there. So Now, Karen, you're, you have Kansas in the name, but you're, I noticed you're a .org and not a .gov. So tell us about your firm and what we you are do. We are .org. We actually started out as a World Trade Center. Um, I see. And in 2012, we stopped being a World Trade Center. Um, wasn't a good business model fit for us. So what we do is we help primarily Kansas companies uh, export um, and import. Our whole, since this is an educated and um, a professional crowd in international trade, we help companies internationalize. Um, most of the companies are um, in Kansas, but we do have clients outside. And we really try to make sure that the company is well-connected. So we built an ecosystem that supports exporters um, in the state of Kansas um, um, with public and private sector resources, and then we make sure we connect the companies to those resources. So now, Kansas is well-known as a farm state, but also Wichita is famous for its expertise in aviation. Yes. So what else is involved? Who other some of the other firms or industries that you are part of your business plan? That's a really great question. Uh, a lot of people are familiar with us as being farm country, um, but it's really aerospace country. It's one of the five aerospace clusters in the world. Um, so within uh, a hundred mile, probably actually much less, um, radius of the city of Wichita, we have over 350 aerospace, aerospace suppliers. So people who concentrate on building aerostructures in particular. Right. So um, they, the aerospace industry actually makes up more than half of the total exports coming from Wichita metro area. And this, the Wichita metro makes up almost half of the state's total exports. So it's a big exporter. So how did that happen? I mean, this is a study in location economics, I think. You, is this a case where you, one or two came and then all the rest of them yes. congregated? Yes. So we used to have Boeing Commercial and Boeing Defense, um, but we have a couple of companies you might have heard of, Cessna Aircraft Company, um, yes. uh, Beechcraft and Learjet. Um, so way back there were some inventors. Yeah. 80 who to 100 years this. ago. Yeah. yeah, right. And there's a, there's a debate on how that actually happened. And I will tell you, it happened, in my opinion, organically. It would mm -hmm. develop, the aerospace industry developed organically from folks who had capital, from folks who were innovators, and folks who really understood flight and engineering. And you put all those together and you get aerospace companies. Oh, this is interesting because we're doing some other work on this here at CSIS. Was there any government role? Did the municipal government for the state government have anything to do with it? Or did they just watch as it happened? The local government in particular has been a great partner to the aerospace industry. You know, were they part of the conception of the aerospace industry? I, I, I don't really know, but I'm sure, sure not. But, you know, as the companies are expanding or as they're needing workforce or as they're, you know, looking at um, getting enough water Water to build aircraft, you know, build aircraft. They're working with the local government, so I think that definitely a partner in the you know eighty to hundred years history. It's amazing. These geographic areas of expertise are quite remarkable. They're quite durable. I mean, mm -hmm. whether it's the Motor City or Silicon Valley, mm -hmm. I mean, these things have a reason for being there. And a lot of the reason is you make things something that's quite complicated. Mm -hmm. Complicated manufacturing requires coordination. And up until very recently, coordination required face-to-face -face interaction. And so being close to your customers 
was an essential element of being an effective supplier. So uh, the, these nodes, they're, uh, it's one of the more more interesting things to me about American sort of commercial geography is finding these things and trying to understand them better. But I hope our readers will think differently about Wichita in the future, our listeners, uh, if they uh, if they didn't know that already. But before we go on, could you talk to the audience about what the ITAC is, uh, that this is actually a, uh, a committee, an advisory committee created by the a statute and operates uh, under official U.S. government uh, uh, imprimatur. So talk about wh- where the ITACs came from and what your role is in advising the government. The way I often explain it is ITAC is a partnership between the private sector and the U.S. Trade Reps Office as well as U.S. DOC, Department of Commerce. Um, and it's fairly unique. Um, so our job as ITAC advisors is to voluntarily give advice to the trade negotiators that represents our constituency. In our case, ITAC 9 is small, medium, and minority business. Um, and and so we there's some things that we have to do by statute. For example, USMCA. So once a free trade agreement is negotiated, um, once it's announced that it's finished, we have 30 days to provide a statutory report. Uh, but we've also voluntarily provide letters of recommendation or priority letters or um, opinion letters, I suppose is a good way to put it, on a number of U.S. trade action. So the key question is, does anybody pay attention to your advice? I'd love to answer that. Um, when I first started um, getting involved in iTech, I, I got what I think was some very good advice, which was, you know, go ahead and, and give input and just recognize that some sometimes whatever administration will pay attention and sometimes they won't. And you sometimes won't know for years, as we all know with trade mm-hmm. policy, we won't know for years whether the advice or input was taken. When I was in the government, I was on the opposite side of this. I, I was the Undersecretary of Commerce, and I had ITACs that reported to my bureau, and I occasionally would go to some of the meetings. And I found them very helpful. I think our technical people found them very helpful. And in my case, these were people that uh, a lot of engineers wanted to talk about the, the the characteristics of new products because we were controlling them. It was a little bit different than than the, the purpose of your I, ITAC, but the, the committees functioned in the same way. They were providing advice. I think what I learned from the the companies, and maybe you can tell me that this is right or wrong in your experience, was the ones that came in or were the individuals that came in trying to reform the whole system and turn everything upside down didn't get very far. Uh, But the ones that understood that their role really was incremental. Uh, and to suggest that you know maybe you should do this a different way. Here's something you you should look at that you haven't been looked at. Ended up having a lot of success and a lot of impact as long as they understood sort of the inherent limitations of of, of the system that they were part of. I agree. Since we're all volunteers, um, and even the leadership is voluntary, so we're elected. So Kim and I have been elected by you know the ITEC nine committee members. Uh, as the chair, I have made it part of my platform that each time that we criticize, we also try to come up with a solution. And so by the very nature of us saying, we have an issue with this, or this is maybe having a negative impact um, on on small, medium, and minority businesses, but we also make a commitment to try to provide a suggested solution, then just by nature of doing that, by making that commitment, we're doing incremental work. Um, But I have to say that in the 13 years that I've been doing this, 
I experienced something similar to, to Kim. It's quite overwhelming at first. When you first come on, you, there's no orientation or onboarding process. So you just kind of find your way or, you know, someone mentors you or coaches you. Um, but over this period of time, I think we've seen some pretty phenomenal moves for, movements forward. Um, so, for example, <clears throat> we now have a, a, a small business negotiator. When I started, we didn't. When we started, when Kim and I started, we didn't have Christina Sevilla with USTR, who represents small, medium, and minority business across you know all platforms. Um, we didn't have small business chapters. There wasn't mention of the needs of small businesses in the government procurement chapter of the new free trade agreement. So those are very significant movements forward for. The, our committee work and things that we've all worked on, requested, you know, over over time, we we had to wait. That's a big step forward, big and step. of course, the number of small traders seems to be growing exponentially. I think certainly the digital commerce has benefited sort of one and two and really very micro firms uh, and and gotten uh, people who were just trading on eBay uh, to have international customers. So this is, seems like an amazing growth area for uh, for trade policy, given that 30 years ago we thought about you had, you had to be big to trade. You had to be big to, to be able to hire a customs broker or a freight forwarder or have some foreign office uh, operation to be able to settle settle the, the contract terms. And now this is all part of the digital space, and the scale has changed dramatically. Are you finding that in your – are you hearing that from your members? Oh, absolutely. I think um, – um, I love the term micro-multinational, which yes. I think is – it really describes a lot of companies now. And and it also uh, underscores the fact that, that uh, the issues or the challenges of, of a small company would also be the same as for the large ones, generally speaking. Um, although there's just you know, – 98% of the people doing trade now are, are in the small business realm. So, I agree. Were uh, policy changes like de minimis uh, uh, particularly important to your small business clients and and uh, advi- other, other advisors on the committee? What are yes. the, some of the things that you you look at in that area from a policy standpoint that are particularly important? Yes, and you know the de minimis issue is something our committee has been working on for um, I mean a number of years, and we have made some headway in the USMCA where they raise the de minimis levels. Um, quite significantly, um, but it's only for express shipments. We actually asked for all shipments. Now, this is the point where Andrew would would uh, coach <laughs> Bill and I to to tell the audience what de minimis is instead of using a term that's somewhat form. So, de minimis is basically the dollar value of the export or import under which the customs authorities essentially. Don't pay any attention to it. Is that is that a fair exactly. summary yes, of it? That's fair. Absolutely. And where was it in the U.S. and where is it now for U.S. Uh, customs? We had asked for a higher de minimis, I think, of twenty five hundred. We asked for twenty five hundred. We got it's eight hundred now, yeah. Yeah. but it used to be what two hundred. Two hundred, right, yeah. right. And so the move from two hundred to eight hundred is really problem. important. Yes. If you're if you're a small retailer with customers, say in in one foreign Jewelry country, or Canada, something. or yeah. something like that, all right. The most important aspect of it is not only do you, is your paperwork streamlined, but one of the very common practices in retailing, you have to have good returns policy to be a retailer, yes. and the returns basically simplify life for your customer, who also has to deal with customs on the return if it's if if it right. is above the minimum threshold. And you're making some important points. It's not just about the level at which you have to pay taxes and tariffs. It's also the ease of the movement. So for a small business, if you do less paperwork, 
that's going to be a real great boon to your, you know, to your company if you have to spend less time doing something. I mean, more time, yeah. you know, spent on sales. There's been a backlash about this uh, from the security uh, side of concern about more stuff getting in un, unexamined or unchecked. Uh, and uh, you know, and also the, uh, the sort of fraud issues of larger things being broken down into multiple small packages in order to avoid duties. Uh, have you run into those kinds of things? Do you think there are security issues here? Or, uh, I mean, or, and do you see, uh, as your committee addressing the question of, of rumored uh, rollbacks that we might, the administration might propose uh, reducing it below 800 and going back to a smaller number? I think that's a fair question. I think it's something that needs to be examined, but is it a de minimis issue or is it an export control issue and an education issue uh, you know, regarding export compliance? So in our business at Kansas Global, we do a fair amount of, with all those aerospace companies, we do a sure. fair amount of export compliance consultation where we're working really hard to make sure you know, make our contribution that border, the borders are secure and then the, the nation is secure. I don't see that as a de minimis issue, but as a you know export compliance a defense issue. Certainly, small package security is something, whether foreign or international, or domestic packages uh, that that companies like uh, in the, in the express package business uh, spend a lot of time on and, and focus their systems and and are quite concerned about the routine transport of small items, which we all you know at my house we seem to get like three packages a day, all small deliveries, which if they were international packages would be affected by the de minimis laws. Yes, my wife does that. She no longer shops in reality. She always shops in. Online, it's way we buy more our, convenient. We, we buy our dog food online in fifty-pound bags. These enormous boxes show up. It's, um, it's as, a as, real I difference. as I explained to my wife, I don't shop; I buy. <laughs> so shopping, I find exhausting. Just I agree with both of you. And, you, and Bill, it. you sound like my husband. He <laughs> said to me uh, a couple of years ago, "Why do we get so many shipments? And they're always heavy." And I said, "Well." I figure it's better for you to move it than me when I buy it from the grocery Fine store. Fine division of labor. <laughs> there you go. Right. The, re- the real disappointed party in our house is the dog. Because when I had to go buy dog food, he could go to the pet store. Uh, and, and pets are welcome at the pet store. So he could go in and visit with all the other dogs and the occasional cat. Uh, and he could check out the collars and check out the dog beds. And he had a wonderful time. And now this, now it shows up on delivery and he doesn't get to go to the Petco anymore. Well, maybe this is a good time. Maybe to get we should turn to. I was thinking that it was a big week on trade. Uh, it, it was the U.S. China dispute, which has been going on for over a year now, uh, it, it seems to have, have gotten further from a solution rather than closer. The parties seem to be settling in. At the same time, there was a, finally a solution to another big irritant for many small and large members that was the steel and aluminum. Uh, Section 232 tariffs uh, on products from Canada and Mexico, which resulted if you weren't in that business and affected by by steel or aluminum, you may have well been affected by the retaliation. So what, what's been the, re, the the response either from your your members or your business partners or people on the committee uh, to to sort of China looking like it's settling in and going to be difficult to solve, but at least uh, some things are getting resolved. And, and the things that are getting resolved are giving a boost to USMCA, I think, which may and, and yeah, certainly I affected uh, retaliation. And I think in for the farmers in Kansas, the, the, you know, the Canadian Mexican tariffs are going to go away. Yeah, the removal of the Section 232 aluminum and steel tariffs 
on Canadian, Canada and Mexico only. Yes. But there's still more out there. Um, I think that's significant. It has, has really, I mean, it's obviously related to USMCA, which I'm, I'm pleased with. And the farmers, it's good. But um, I mentioned earlier about the aerospace industry. So air, aircraft is made out of aluminum and steel. Um, also, agricultural equipment is made out of steel. Um, so in Kansas, we, um, we're big ma- machinery manufacturers and equipment manufacturers and aerospace manufacturers. So removal of the Section 232 tariffs on aluminum steel will actually help um, with manufacturing input costs. That makes sense. I mean, it's kind of what, back yeah. to a status quo ante because the those industries, steel, aluminum, producing industries were integrated across the borders in North America before the tariffs. The only thing that could still, you know, be a problem is that it's not just Canada and Mexico that the tariffs are on. And even if a company was not importing aluminum and steel, which is kind of difficult not to do, but even if they weren't intentionally doing that, the prices of aluminum and steel were were increased across all areas. Um, We had companies in Kansas tell us that it was anywhere from 12% at the beginning before they were announced to 40 some percent, you know, in, in the last time they talked to us about it, you know, a few weeks ago. So all prices for aluminum still have increased. So that obviously, you know, affects the small business's ability to compete, right. you know, as they're selling across the world. We have a client um, that is a high-end barbecue manufacturer in California. By barbecue, and, by barbecue you mean the equipment, not the, equipment, the pork. Equipment, right. yes. Yeah, okay. And they have been producing some of their line in China, not, not all of it, but some. But of course, importing steel, same thing to to make their U.S. manufactured products that are then shipped to Europe. And now the European distributors are screaming because the products are now you know twenty five percent more expensive. So yeah, this this is a, an example of a company that's being hit on all sides, right? And there's no easy answer for the future for them. It's good to know that Europeans barbecue. They do. They do. <laughs> Warms my heart. Then unfortunately, they barbecue European beef and pork, not American beef and pork. Well, that's certainly, and certainly European chickens <laughs> and not American chickens. We've talked about chickens on, on this show in the past. It's interesting, the, the China tariffs. Um, I actually don't have as much of an issue with the tariffs on Chinese imported products as I do with Section 232. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, small businesses are being impacted by that. And there's a little company that I work with up in um, McPherson, Kansas, which is sort of in north central Kansas, and um, expanding his company and needed a machine, a new plastic line machine, and um, ordered it. It was on the water, and he got hit with a tariff, so it cost him seventy thousand more. Which that doesn't sound like a big, a lot of money. It is a lot of money, but it doesn't sound as big if you're a big corporation. Sounds like but a lot means, of money to me. It's two. It <laughs> means two jobs, right. for him. Yeah, that cuts he into didn't payroll. hire two people. Right. Yeah, yeah, it's one of those things. Small businesses don't have that many places to get seventy thousand right. dollars extra. Right. You know, you can get it from your customers if you can raise prices, which most can't. Right. You can get it from your your shareholders and if you this, have them, and this, or your employees. In this case, it was an expansion. So yeah. he was buying the machine to expand his product line so he could grow his business. So he paid the tariff, the seventy the extra seventy thousand dollars he hadn't budgeted for. And what happened was he didn't hire the two employees because they had to pay the tariff. So the growth is slowed, sure. stymied because of the tariff. And no government statistic will ever ever find the two people he didn't hire because that never gets reported. So right. it, it's one of the more, more remarkable parts of the past year. And it, it is, any, in any case, it's it's reassured my faith in the sophistication and, and ability of American supply chain managers that 
after a year of tariffs, you have to squint pretty hard to find that uh, any any numbers at the macro level that would indicate it's a problem. And yet, uh, it's great to have your voice in this because everybody's business is affected. You're distracted. You're making choices. You're you're not making investments. You're you're not hiring people when you're trying to deal with the the kind of difficulty, operational difficulty that these tariffs have produced. So I think it's so important that you're still talking about this on a human level, uh, uh, even if you can't find it in the numbers. It matters. It does matter because I mean, when it comes down to it. It's humans that are making these decisions and dealing with the consequences, negative or positive, of the tariff actions. And the small businesses, not only is it happening, they don't know who to talk to. They don't right. know who, where to go to find solutions. They don't know what they don't know. So they sure. don't even know how to deal with this. So, for example, um, Kim and I were talking earlier about the product exclusion process, which is also something we monitor. So we're grateful that there's a product exclusion process for the tariffs. Um, working with the same gentleman, he has applied for an exclusion. My role has simply been to almost like act as an interpreter. And I'm not an attorney, but having had the privilege of doing, you know, working with USTR and USDOC all these years on trade policy, um, I can understand their language. He is a business owner and an entrepreneur, a really smart guy, very successful. And he says to me all the time, I'm so glad I have you because you're so smart. I'm not that smart, but what he's really saying is, I don't know how to read the instructions. I don't understand the Federal Register notice. I don't know what this language means and how it applies to me. So we have some tools that are supposed to be available for everyone or are available for everyone. And small businesses, I don't think, are availing themselves as a, of it as much as they probably could because they don't even want to deal with how the tool works. Sure. This is a perennial problem. I mean, if you're Boeing, you can have five people who don't do anything but that. Right. And and their job is compliance and their job is, is checking the regulations that come out. And if you're not paying attention, uh, you, you, these things can get very, very expensive. When I was at Commerce, uh, I had an enforcement branch that had to deal with people who were not complying with, with the law, and I was the appeals person. So if they were unhappy, they were fined, they were unhappy with the fine. These things ended up on my desk, and I remember we had one which it consisted of of a. I mean, I felt very sorry for the company. Um, they had been shipping an item to uh, another country for 20 years without any difficulties. And then thanks to a multilateral decision, the item they were shipping, which had not been controlled for export, suddenly was controlled for export because all the countries decided it needed to be controlled. It was an ingredient. And apparently what happened is trying to piece it together. I think uh, whoever it was in the company who was in charge of reading the Federal Register must have been on vacation that week because they missed it. Uh, and then they proceeded for uh, six months to make six months or a year to continue to ship this product once a month. They had it was a, they had a schedule. So when the department caught up with them, they were fined. And I think it was a year. They were fined for twelve months of illegal shipments. And thinking about it, I realized then they came. They wanted the penalty mitigated, and I was thinking, you know, one person made one mistake. You know, he or she didn't read the Federal Register on the one day that it mattered. Now, if you have if you're Boeing, you know, you have redundancy and you have people, that's their job. And if they go away, they make sure someone covers it. If you're a small company, uh, you're, you're up the creek. Right. And this gentleman said, how, I, I remember, I'm so glad you told that story, Bill, because I remember when this gentleman first called, actually his regional, his local economic development partner 
called me and said, can you help with this? Um, and then got this gentleman, his name's Mark, on the phone. And he said, Karen, how was I supposed to know that that was going to happen? Which leads me to another thing. I um, just talked to him actually uh, yesterday. He said he was going to, he's thinking about ordering another machine because he wants to expand, right? He has more work to do. He's getting, he's, he's you know, on the cusp of getting a great, you know, great, great, big new customer. And um, he said, now at least I know who to call to help me with the process if I need to pay the tariffs. Um, but he he was saying, I, you know, if I don't know who to call, if I didn't know to watch for a Federal Register notice, I mean, I think all of us know to look at Federal Register notices, but this gentleman, he's just trying to sure. grow his business. Right. He doesn't know he's even supposed, I don't even know if he knew about a Federal Register until I told him. You know, oh, it came in the Federal Register notice in August, but he can't pivot. So right. he, because he's only, you know, this entrepreneurship, you know, entrepreneur startup. When we talk about, I think when you talk about in like the the media or, or with our, you know, uh, political friends, they say, oh, well, a small business can pivot to a different supplier. Yes, well, maybe, maybe, maybe with not. Tom, yeah. maybe with time, right? right? That's what this gentleman said. It was already in the water. I didn't know I shouldn't order from China. Right. Because I didn't know it was coming. And finding a new supplier is not exactly falling off a log. No, it's it, not. It requires effort. It takes effort time and, and investigation. And, right. and, exactly. Yeah, this is this is classic. Uh, we've done some work here at CSIS on sort of export control issues and, and compliance and enforcement issues. And you've uh, really hit on, on the biggest problem. The compliance problem really is not for aerospace companies like Lockheed Martin or Boeing or uh, General Dynamics, they have fleets of people whose job it is is to make sure that the company adheres to the law. And these are people that know the law very, very well. And they're on other they're on other ITACs and, and are regularly interacting. Uh, the problem in the high-tech end is, is the proverbial, you know, three guys in a garage mm-hmm. uh, in California someplace. And uh, they come up with some cool new app or some new piece of equipment. And the next thing that happens is some Chinese guy shows up because they're paying attention and offers them $50 million for their company. Uh, and they don't know that they need permission to do that from the government right. under uh, CFIUS. Mm-hmm. They don't know that they need permission to transfer technology, even if they're not being acquired. And I'm, there's also the question of whether they would care, even if they did know. But they don't know. And uh, how they find out is, uh, you know, is, is complicated. The Usually government. the hard way. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, they get exactly. investigated. They get the arrest warrants. It's it's a problem. And I, I think that, you know, for the work that Kim and I do in our, you know, in our professional lives, not not the volunteer ITAC life, is largely tries to get at solving that problem. So in Kim's work at Zeneda, um, she's, you know, basically functions as an export department. So she has the knowledge and she takes on a client, functions as export department. So she has all that knowledge. And we do the sim- similar things for our clients where we understand the export regs around, you know, defense. Our experience, Bill, is pretty interesting, is that most of the companies that we work with, when we explain to them why export controls exist, which is for the protection of the nation, they actually become more enthusiastic. That makes sense. Once they are aware. Yeah. Um, it, but that's us, like, actively and proactively going out, reaching out to companies and saying, you're an aerospace company. Are you, are you good? You know, let's take a look at this. Can we do a spot check kind of a thing? But, you know, 
how is how how do we make that better? How do you, how does the U.S. government and all its agencies get the word out better? I've I've thought about that quite a bit. Is there more? Is there better? And more marketing and communications that could be done, and how would that work? I mean, I don't, I don't have a solution to that. But well, there's a lot of outreach, um, and there are there are organizations. When when uh, Kim arrived, we talked about an old one, the CCI, the California Council on International Trade, which is, I think, now part of the California Chamber, but at the t- time it was independent, and they uh, back up. Uh, Along, we're showing our age when we talk about this, but they did a lot of work, simply a lot of members who were small people, helping them to just understand what the landscape was and what the climate is, sort of doing collectively what what you do. Um, governments, some agencies in the enforcement business, when I was in the enforcement business, we did a lot of outreach, uh, both uh, large-scale, big conferences that people could come to. Uh, BIS has one big one here. They have one big one on the West Coast every year, and I think for the West Coast, there'll be five or 600 people on a good year that, that show up. Um, but there's an awful lot of visiting that goes on. The law firm that I'm also associated with, in addition to CSIS, we have a client that's uh, an academic institution. And uh, nothing got them excited as when they got a notice from the Commerce Department that they were coming to pay a visit. And, and oh, the wonderful world of deemed exports, yes. Well, it, it turned out to be a, a benign visit. It turned out to be the, the government wanted to just show up and tell them what was going on and what they were doing. And But it was a signal, which is sort of, we're paying attention. Yeah, we're from the government. We're here to help. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It was an institution that that, uh, that had a, a large number of, of, uh, of federal contracts, R&D sure. con- research contracts, and did a good bit of overseas activity. And in my experience... Some of the worst people in this in this area are are academics because first of all they don't like to be told what to do. Every professor has his own little empire, uh, and uh, and he has his own little grant stream, and he doesn't want the university administration coming in and telling him you can't accept that money or you have to have. There's all these strings attached that we're imposing on you. They don't like that. And then plus they always uh, you get into this. Uh, you know, uh, it's not an export. It's it's research. Right. It's not an export. I just had a conversation. Right. But that could very much be an export. Could, could well, be. sometimes it's tangible. I mean, one of the famous cases that occurred before my time was when uh, the CDC in Atlanta was exporting anthrax to various countries around the world. And they needed the, specimen samples. Yeah, yeah samples. Right. The, the authorities came in and said, what are you doing? And they said, well, we're helping them do research. And you know, finally, somebody <laughs> pointed out, well, under the law, you've shipped product A from United States to country B. That's an export. You can call it whatever you want. It's an export. <laughs> uh, and they kind of got that under control. But for universities, they tend to think, sure, I'm having a conversation. I'm helping the greater good. And it may be a joint project. Mm-hmm. So Now, do you guys have academic clients, or is this not something that you get I do. Um, a university in San Diego that, um, that develops executive education programs for young executives, yeah. and I uh, bring those programs to Middle East. Because they're oh, going through so much, cool. so sure. much change. Plus, you, know? you do SRI, which is basically a think tank, yes. like we are. Yeah, mm-hmm. so and we work with um, Wichita State University um, quite a bit, and Wichita State University has a very active aviation program, both engineers and sure. all kinds of stuff. They have a arm called the National Institute for Aviation Research, and um, so we work with them quite a bit. Um, they have their own compliance department now, but when we first started working with them over ten years ago. We um, made a couple of calls to make sure that they were had the information that they needed, but they're 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 good now, good to go. Okay, Whole that's department great. Of folks. Well, perhaps you could we could close with some advice uh, 
uh, from successful entrepreneurs. The two of you are. From you to us, from, not from well, us to you. More yes. importantly, uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm uh, pleased to be in the business of raising a couple of millennials, at least participating in their being raised. Uh, and when I have the occasion to meet their friends, I'm struck by how many people of their age cohort say, well, now I'm doing this job, but I, what I really want to do is start my own business. Okay, and there's this interest in in entrepreneurship that I don't. I'm certain certain was not present in my generation, and uh, but but it, it just surprises me how how that's a that's a very typical response. What would you say to sort of young people, people in their twenties and thirties, or say or under thirty, let's call it, uh, who who want to get started in their own business? Since you've both succeeded in this space, uh, in the, and made it and internationalized the business, what would you advise them? I'd advise them to, of course, follow their dreams, as we all we always say. But um, more importantly, or equally as important, is to find a need and meet that, and focus on on that aspect, as opposed to just you know. Yes, we all want to do what we love, of course, and sure. you know, if we're fortunate enough to do that, that's great. Um, but to sustain a business, you have to be meeting a need that exists. So it becomes more of a, a science of figuring out exactly where those needs are and, and focus on that. Dreams need a business plan. That's right. And I would caution anyone who wants to start their own business, whether they be a younger person or, or not, that being an entrepreneur doesn't just mean starting a business. But entrepreneurship and entrepreneurial thinking within a company is actually absolutely integral to not only the success of a business, but the success of a nation. So if we don't continue to increase our productivity through innovative concepts, which you can almost synonymously look at with entrepreneurship. Usually people are looking at some sort of innovation fulfilling that need. But that can happen inside a company, inside a small business. And they can then sometimes, if you're thinking about it as a young person, you can cut your teeth sure. with, the, with the security and the infrastructure of an established business. Think as an entrepreneur, so it's entrepreneurial work, help that company grow and expand get some capital, right, as you're going, it's experience, and then start your own business. But I just want to caution and say it doesn't have to be starting your own business. You can be very satisfied if you're an entrepreneurial thinker within an established organization, whether it be a business, a for-profit business, or a nonprofit organization. That's terrific. Karen and Kim, thank you so much for being part of the program, and uh, we wish you well, and uh, are grateful for your efforts on behalf of all small businesses. Thank, thank you. you. Pleasure to be on The Trade Guys. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. We're also now and on see Spotify, what it might take so to get back in the there, game here. You're listening or to Rolling maybe Stone, not get you're listening to Tom we'll Petty or whatever you're listening Thanks, to. Thanks, Craig. Thank you, Trade Guys. Thanks, Thanks you. You've been listening to the Trade Guys a CSIS podcast.